expressing loving, praiseful, more worshipful, more giving crowd of people in all my life than I am right now. Praise the Lord. It's simply wonderful what the Lord is doing and what the Lord is going to continue to do during the remaining days of this Christ for the Nation seminar. I am everlastingly grateful to Sister Lindsay for opening the door and inviting me to be a participant in the seminar and to share the to have some share in the platform with these brethren who are so ably ministering the word. I have said before, and I'll say it again because I like to say it, if I thought that we were in a contest or we were trying to compete as public speakers, I would quit, take my dolls, and go home right away. But I thank God we're not in a competition. We are here to complement each other, to complete the truth of God's Word so that we'll each one receive all that the Lord would, all that the Lord has for us by the time you have to go home or by the time the seminar draws to a close. My heart is rejoicing for this wonderful, wonderful response financially, first for the offering the other night and then for this marvelous response financially for the work of the Lord in literature and for the building of buildings on foreign soil. We have spent some little time in Africa ourselves. I've been out there eight times. I suppose I've spent an aggregate of possibly... I haven't been a missionary on the foreign field for many years, but I went out there first many years ago, and I've been back and forth frequently for many years. I suppose eight times I've been out there, different countries in Africa, and my heart is still there. If it was left to my own decision and choice, I would be there now, I suppose. But we're amenable to the will of God and seek to be led by the Lord. But the Lord ha has graciously given me the privilege of going out there at various times and helping the work of God along. And so we thank God for this wonderful response for the foreign field. And uh, I am enamored with the work of the Lord. I just... Uh, almost become irrational when I, when I hear these wonderful, wonderful reports pouring in of what God is doing. I want to be in Mexico down there with Brother Myers, preaching the gospel and establishing churches all over Mexico. I want to be in the great revival in Nigeria. I want to be in, in the Philippines. When I got the baptism of the Holy Ghost, I heard of somebody from the San Blas Islands in South America, and I thought I had a call to the San Blas Islands, 14 years old. But I didn't. A few weeks after that, I, hold, I heard W.W. W. Simpson preach about the smelly aisle, uh, alleys of the back alleys of the great metropolis, metropolitan areas of China, and I got a call to China. thought I did, and I, I wanted to go to China so bad and preach the gospel to the Chinese, but of course it just wasn't exactly God's will. And then I heard a young man preach about going to India. India, dark, India, Jesus died to set thee free. India, sad India, we bring Christ to thee, and my heart almost broke, and I went home bawling and crying and was burdened, and, and to just hear the wail of the heathen for days, and the bonging of 
temple chimes and the Indian temples where they worship gods of wood and stone, and I wanted to go to India so bad I could hardly stand it. Then a fellow came along and talked about the about the jungle tribes of Liberia, West Africa, and I couldn't stand that at all. I packed up and went. And I've been going back and forth ever since. Praise the Lord. How in the world people can be Christians and not have a passion and a compassion and a burden for lost souls on the outside is just a little bit beyond my comprehension. So I can't understand it, so I'll just have to uh, get along without understanding it. But as for me and my house, brother, oh, I'm just enamored with the work of the Lord. Hallelujah. Jesus died for the whole world. Shall we pray? Our Father, we pray that Thou would help us to speak the words that Thou would have us to speak. And in Thy light, may we see light this afternoon. Saints that are troubled, saints that are disturbed, saints, Lord, that are, that are a bit confused in their minds about various things, send peace to their minds. Lord, some things they're trying to find the answers to, they don't have to have the answers to. You want them to just walk on and serve thee in faith in what they do understand. And thou let light shine on their path as the days come and go according to thy will. And so we pray, Lord, you'll help us this afternoon. We pray that thou will anoint our lips, guide our thoughts, inspire us, quicken us. Lord, in our, in our very physical bodies, and here's the congregation, Lord, they've been sitting here practically all day long for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and here is Thursday. They're getting weary, whether they feel it or not, they are. And we pray, Lord, that thou would quicken them. May their minds become alert to receive the truth of God, to live on it, not today, but for days and weeks and months to come, that we'll be edified by the truth of thy word. We ask in Jesus' dear name, amen. I want to talk this afternoon about shoes. S-H-O-E-S, shoes is my subject. If that is a little bit, if that is a bit enigmatic, I think that's the right word, I'll give it another title. Why the walls of Jericho fell down. You ever hear, you ever hear it explained, why the walls of Jericho fell down? Well, I want to talk about why the walls of Jericho fell down. Uh, that's tied in with this subject of shoes. You say, how? Well, you just sit tight and listen. Pray that God will f help me to find a parking place before I overrun my time, and we'll, we'll, I think we, we'll be able to get a little light down on the subject. Praise the Lord. Then there's another title, another subheading I could give my sermonette this afternoon, and that would be Crucified with Christ. The crucified life. Well, that's really, seriously what I'm talking about. The crucified life. And my text is the Galatians, the second chapter in the 20th verse. I am crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. I was talking at a Bible school some months ago. A young lady came up to me. All oh, those students were so hungry for God and pulled it out of you and just drank it in so avidly. She came up to me and said, Brother Trotter, I wonderfully enjoyed that message last night or whenever it was, but she said, you made me mad. I said, what did I do? She said, you took your text, just keyed up so fast, she said, I didn't quite get it. And I spent the whole hour you were preaching, I spent trying to find your text, where, where in the world you were talking from. 
she said, please, give us time to at least write it down or hear it. So I'll take you your time to write it down. Galatians. That's in the New Testament. The second chapter, the 20th verse, the author is Paul, the apostle. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if I was gifted as some speakers are gifted, I wouldn't have to, I would not have to ask you to pay close attention or to do your best to follow my feeble efforts to expound the truth. I'll do the best I can. But we're going, first of all, in talking about this, to me, very, very vital, important subject. We're going back to the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth was a Moabitess. There was a man and his wife that lived in Bethlehem. Sister Lindsay knows where Bethlehem is, and a lot of you folks, folks know where Bethlehem is. You've been out there enough times. And uh, the Bethlehem means house of bread. And there was a famine came, and so they migrated from Bethlehem because of the hungry time. They went down to Moab. And when they were in Moab, the man died, and their two sons died. But before the sons died, they got married to Moabitess girls. They had Moabitish wives, and the whole three, all three men died. I can't say their names, I get mixed up, but they died. So it left three widows. The widow, who, the woman that left Bethlehem, the mother, Naomi, and then the two Moabitish girls, Ruth and Orpah. One day, Naomi heard good news from a passing caravan that there was bread back in Bethlehem, so she said, I'm going home. So she went back to Bethlehem. She said to her daughters-in-law, I'm going back to Bethlehem. You, you two stay here. Goodbye. And uh, they said, oh, no, we're going with you. She said, now, look, I serve a different God than you serve. I, I live in a different country than you, you, you in which you live, and uh, we have different customs and different laws, and you're not going to be happy there. Stay here. You won't fit. You won't fit into our program and method and, and way of life. And uh, Orpah lifted up her voice and wept and said goodbye, Mama, and went back home to her heathen gods and stayed in Moab. But this other girl, Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, she said, Whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God, my God. Whither thou diest, I will die. And there... Will I be buried? Don't even take my bones back to Moab. I'm through with it. The way you've lived and the God you've talked about has so got a hold of my heart that I want to be an Israelite. And so Naomi said, all right. You said it. I didn't. Come on. And they went back to Bethlehem. Now, God had a social security plan back there. No, 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 no. He had a welfare plan. He said in the book of Leviticus, when you reap the, your field... Don't be so stingy that you shake the sugar off the fly's legs before you let him out of the sugar bowl. Uh, he says, uh, when you reap the field, don't get into the very corner and take the last grain. But let it stand there. You know, you come to the corner, just kind of cut, a, cut the corner a little bit rounding and let the few stalks of grain stand there so the poor people of the land, they can come into the field and glean that to pick up the leavings. And if your harvest hand happens to drop 
a sheaf of grain or a handful of grain, don't stop down and pick it up. Don't be so tight. Let it lay there. The poor people will be able to come and scrape it up so they'll have something to eat. That was God's welfare plan. And when they got to Bethlehem, they were both poor as Job's turkey. Uh, Job's turkey was so poor he had to lean against the barn door to gobble. And, uh, and, uh, and so Naomi, she, she, she shacked up. I mean, she was taken in by some of the relations or given some kind of a lean-to to live in. And, uh, and Ruth went out, and the Bible says her hat, H-A-P, it means just happened to be the way that she landed in a field of a man by the name of Boaz. But I've got to talk fast. My, that clock's going around so quick. And, 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 and she landed in the field of, the na- of a man by the name of Boaz. He had two names in the Bible. One was Boaz. The other was Ibsan. He was a judge in Israel. One of the big politicians. He was a judge in Israel. Ibsen. This is taught by the Jews in the synagogues to this day. Boaz is Ibsen. And so, uh, uh, this, this rich nobleman that had flocks and herds and fields of grain, it happened to be Ruth's lot. She was taught by Naomi. Now, Naomi, Naomi said, Ruth, we don't have anything to eat, but according to the law, you're allowed to go into any field. It was barley harvest, Passover time, spring of the year, just before Easter. You're allowed to go in and glean the grain that falls that you happen to find that the reapers left. You're allowed to get that and bring it home. We'll grind it up and have some pancakes. And so Naomi landed in the field of Boaz. It says hat, but there's nothing happens in accident to the one that has renounced the world, the flesh, and the devil, and put their feet in the bloody footprints of the Son of God to become an Israelite and to walk with God. Things from that moment when you make that consecration and leave the world and follow the meek and lowly Nazarene, God Almighty sends the Holy Ghost to overshadow you and to guard you and guide you and provide for you and to do everything to your good. And it was by divine providence that Ruth landed in the field of Boaz. And Boaz saw the beautiful brown-eyed damsel beauty queen from Moab, and he says to some of his chief harvest hands and the man that ran the combine, I mean the combine of that day, he said, "Uh, who's the uh, strange young lady down there? The the one, don't ask me who I mean. You know who I mean. Who is she? Well, that's Ruth the Moabitess. Well, when she goes to get a drink, you fellows treat her right. Don't go shoving her aside and misbehaving and see to it that you keep your distance. I'm interested. (laughs) And he said, incidentally, when you know that she's right in the furrow right behind you, you know, along the, where the scythe was reaping down the grain, when she's right behind you and you're gathering up the grain, you've got a big handful of grain and you know she's right behind you, drop it on the ground in purpose so she can get it. Or a blind man would know that he was in love with her. <laughs> Case of love at first sight. And so, Naomi went home that night with a whole uh, huge uh, harvest of gleanings. And Naomi said, oh, uh, where you been? She said, in the field of Boaz. Oh, Naomi said, glory be to God in the land forever. Wonderful. He's a kinsman. Now, the law said if a widow, if a Jew died and left his wife childless, left, he was left childless, his nearest kinsman should marry the girl 
and raise up seed so that the name of the departed man, the departed Israelite, should not perish from off the earth. So it was up to one of these near kinsmen of her late husband to marry her and redeem the inheritance. The inheritance was mortgaged or they wouldn't have had to leave Bethlehem to go down to Moab in the first place. And so, uh, uh, well, the romance thickened and brightened and, and flourished until at last, until at last, uh, uh, to make a long story short, Ruth claimed Boaz as her kinsman redeemer, said, Boaz, I want you to redeem the property, and I want you to do the part of a kinsman redeemer to me, be my husband, she made the proposition that wouldn't be just the, the right thing today, although it's done, but uh, it, it's done in a different manner. But uh, she was, Ruth was taught in every step. She was taught by the Holy Ghost. She was taught by Naomi what to do in order to become the bride of the uh, Boaz. And from the time you get saved, if you listen, the Holy Ghost is your guard and guardian guide and guardian, pardon me, I got it wrong. He's your guide and your guardian, and he's your instructor to take of the things of Christ and reveal them unto you, and to teach you the way that you should go in order that you make, might make the brideship. You've got to listen close to what Naomi has to say. And so, it culminated in Ruth claiming Boaz as her kinsman redeemer, and Boaz said, I'm going to settle it today. Ruth went home, loaded down with grain again from the threshing floor, the third chapter of Ruth, and uh, Naomi said, sit still, my daughter. The man's not going to rest until he's finished the matter this day. And so Naomi, Boaz went down to the elders of the city at the gate of Bethlehem and said, uh, uh, you, uh, you old uh, judges, uh, I've got a little matter I want to talk over with you. And they said, oh, yes, as if they didn't know. Why, all the gossips in that town was talking about it morning, noon, and night at the well and at the grist mill and every place else. Oh, did you know that Ruth and Boaz were, there was a romance uh, afoot? Why, they all knew it, but those old gray beards, bald heads, they, they just sat around and acted innocent and said, oh, you want to see us? Yes, I want to see you. And Boaz, now get this close, Boaz stood at the gate of Bethlehem, and he was going to make a claim on Ruth as her kinsman redeemer to pay the mortgage off on the farm and to marry the girl. But there was another individual that had a nearer claim on Ruth than he had. We do not know his name. Other than that, Boaz stood there, and as the visitors came, the, 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 the travelers and the merchants and the, and the wayfarers came in and out of the gate of Bethlehem. Boaz stood there and greeted him. Good morning, Hezekiah. Good morning, Jeremiah. Good morning, Isaiah. Good morning, Jacob. How are you? How are you? How, hello, Solomon. Hello, David. And they were all greeting each other. And after a while, a stranger came along, or another local yokel, I mean, another gentleman came along, and, uh, and Boaz said, get it now. Ho, such a one! Turn aside! I have a matter to discuss with thee. And this fellow... The Bible calls him, Boaz called him, Ho such a one. So, Ho such a one said, All right, so Ho such a one turned aside. 
And so what, what do you want to talk about? And uh, Boaz said, whoa, we'll get right down to brass tacks. I'm talking about Ruth, that beautiful beauty prize winner, contest winner that came from, from Moab. She is the widow of our departed late kinsman. And uh, you know what the Bible says, you know what the law says, the nearest kinsman that is able must pay off the family debt, redeem the farm, and marry the widow. Only Boaz kept that to himself. He said, you've got to play the part of a kinsman redeemer to her. And the oh, such a one says, why, absolutely. Who wouldn't? Mouth-watering. Who wouldn't? Why, sure. I'll play the part of the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz said, no, you, that in the day you pay off the mortgage, you've got to marry the widow. And ho, such a one says, oh, I can't. And I shan't, for my wife won't let me. He didn't say it that way. He said, lest I mar mine inheritance. What he really meant, transliterated by, by the way some of these modern translations would read, my wife won't let me. He said, I can't I can redeem the farm. I can pay off the mortgage. I got the boodle, but, but I can't marry the widow. Boy, that would, that would get me all mixed up. And Boaz said, do you really mean that you relinquish? You have a first claim on the girl. I'm second in line. But if you really mean you relinquish the claim, prove it. So the one that was next, the first in line as Redeemer, he got down and took off his shoes. That's where the shoe business comes in. He took off his shoes. And when he took off his shoes... It was a manner in Israel when a person relinquished a claim to take off his shoe, meaning I can't fulfill my responsibilities. I cannot fulfill what I am called upon to do. I just can't do it. So therefore, I relinquish my claim. I cast off my shoe. And nobody ever found out what happened to that pair of shoes. But the rabbis in the synagogues in Dallas teach their students that when the host such a one cast off his shoe, that Boaz put them on. And he took the old gray-beard judges of Israel and said, Come with me, gentlemen. I'm going to demonstrate to you that I am fulfilling the part of a kinsman redeemer. And tonight at six bells, we're going to have a wedding. Now keep up with me. And he walked around the inheritance that had been mortgaged. He walked around the inheritance of the widow Ruth, demonstrating, and those old rabbis followed behind him, writing it down on their wax tablets and on their sheepskins. They were writing it down. Yeah, I was a witness, and I, I footed it around the, the inheritance. And Boaz walked around it in host such a one's shoes, and he redeemed the inheritance. And that night there was a wedding. Glory to God. He married the girl. Now what's that all mean? Did God put that in the Bible for a lot of nonsense just so we'd have something interesting to read? No. Who's host such a one? The law. The law had first claim. The first covenant had first claim upon us, and the law was the ministration of death. The law couldn't redeem us. The law couldn't get a, 
a bunch of sinners redeemed and justified and right with God and full of the Holy Ghost ready to meet Jesus to reign with him when he comes to reign. The law couldn't do that. Paul sums the whole thing up by saying what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that we might be made the righteousness of God who believe in Jesus Christ. And the law totally failed. And our heavenly Boaz, with all his wealth of all heaven and earth, glory to God and the Lamb forever, he came down. And what the law couldn't do, Jesus Christ did do. For Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Hallelujah to his name forever and forever. Hallelujah. And now he's getting the bride ready to take us home for a wedding in the skies. Glory to God and the Lamb forever. Well, that's where the shoe business comes in. And that's right where we are today. The one that had the first claim on us failed. The law couldn't do it. Paul says if righteousness could have been by the law, verily Christ would never have died. But the law was unable to fulfill its responsibility. It was powerless to redeem from sin. All it could do was shout down on us, you sinners, you're worthy of death. That's all it could do. Under the law with its tenfold lash, learning at last how true that the more I tried, the sooner I died, while the law cried, you, you, you. Helplessly stilled the battle rage, oh, wretched man, my cry, and deliverance sought by some penance bought. While my heart cried, I, I, I. Then came a day when my struggle ceased, and trembling in every limb, at the foot of a tree where one died for me, I sobbed out him, him, hallelujah to God and the Lamb forever. And I got up off my knees and dried my eyes and knew that I was justified. The mortgage was paid off, glory to God, and was canceled. And all the interest, too, was paid, hallelujah to God and the Lamb forever, for by his stripes I'm healed. Well, aren't you going to die? Everybody that Jesus ever prayed for and they were healed, they died. They, they, they did. Did they lose their faith? No, they just fulfilled the law of God. It's appointed unto man wants to die. There's a difference between divine healing and immortality in this body, this side of the resurrection. It doesn't disturb my faith that all the old saints who were ever healed of cancers and tumors and God knows what, and the devil does know what, uh, uh, and, and they were healed by the mighty power of God. They laid down and died. And it wasn't just being short of breath. A lot of them died of diseases. And they didn't go to hell. They went to heaven. With all our debt, let's retain our, our fundamental uh, theology. If you don't, you're sunk. You'll get so confused you wonder whether you're in or out or up or down or saved or unsaved or where you are. Bless God, I got my feet on on the rock in some respects that I know where I am. Hallelujah. I know that when Elijah's altar was touched with the mighty judgment fire of Almighty God, the whole thing disappeared. 
And the water was licked up out of the trench, and all there was left was an empty trench. Glory to God. And I know when Jesus, when the judgment of God got through with Jesus on Calvary's cross bearing our sins, all that was left was an empty tomb over there at Gordon's Calvary. Hallelujah. Empty hole in the ground. Because the judgment fire of God has burned up all the evidence against us, for Jesus took it all on him when he died for us on Calvary's cross. Glory to God in the Lamb forever. Well, hurry up, try to get it said. Well, I'll try. And so, uh, what the law couldn't do, Jesus said, all right. Nope. I'm talking about how to overcome. How to really live the Christian life. How to really be justified. How really to have sin purged out of your life. How to live separated from the world. I have news for all the charismatics. And I have news for all the old Pentecostal saints, what is termed today the classical Pentecostal group. I have a little word for you. Without holiness, no man will see God, and you better believe it. It's still in the Bible. And the general philosophy today is, don't come out of the world, stay in it. But the Bible's full of separate, 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 separate. The world is full of organize, 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 and God's Spirit is saying agonize, 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 agonize. Amen. You love me? I don't want to antagonize anybody. I, I want you to love me. I, I just want to help everybody I can. Well, let's go on. And so, uh, I'm, I'm talking about how to, live a, how, how to live an overcoming life. How to stay saved if you get saved. The law couldn't do anything to help us. And you and your own self-will can do mighty little. But there was a man by the name of Moses, remember? He was a wonderful character. He was called to pastor the biggest church that was ever on earth. The Israelites, between two and three million of them, down there in the land of Egypt, he was called to be their pastor. He went down with signs and miracles and wonders, as we heard our brother speak, when was it? And put his hand in his bosom, it was leprous, and pulled it out, and was... It was healed again, cast the snake on the ground, was turned into a rod, the rod on the ground was turned into a snake, and he took it by the tail. Crazy place to take a snake. Take it by the head, not the tail, but he, he took it by the tail and turned back into a rod. And then down in the court of Pharaoh, they did the same thing. Pharaoh said, Tish, Tish, my dear Watson. <laughs> Elementary, my dear Watson. Jennies! Gambries, come in here and show these local yokels how we do it down in Egypt. Your rods, please. Snakes. And there were snakes crawling all over the place. Moses' snake opened his mouth and swallowed up all the other snakes. Turned by the tail, and then the Egyptians didn't have any rods. And those two signs were signs, and I get it, were signs of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the hand of Jehovah. He was the arm of Jehovah. He was the branch of Jehovah. He put his hand in his bosom, and he was leprous, white as snow. For Jesus, who was the Son of God and the branch of Jehovah, was made sin and the embodiment of loathsome, horrible sin when he died for us on Calvary's cross. 
But the third day he came out of the tomb, and he was justified in the spirit, and the sins were gone. Glory to God. And by his death and resurrection, the rod was cast down, the rod was picked up, Christ died and rose again. And the principle of spiritual victory and overcoming life is in not in manifestations. God knows I love manifestations. And I say that reverently. And I rejoice in manifestations. When I see a young man or a young woman actually, literally, dancing under the anointing of the Holy Ghost and the Spirit, I, I go all to pieces. I weep and I cry for my insides. I think it's simply beautiful. I think it's marvelous. It does something to me. Oh, it's simply wonderful. It, oh, it just lifts me. And I'm, I believe in the manifestations of the Holy Ghost. And I don't think very many of us are qualified to sit in judgment on very many of them. God knows what he's doing. But I want to tell you that there's something more basic than that in our lives than all manifestations of the Spirit, and I mean of the Spirit. I don't mean spurious, I mean of the Spirit. Deeper than the manifestations of the Spirit, more important than all the feelings we can get and all the gamut of feelings from... from uh, do re me up to high do and up to high g or high c whatever it is from the whole scale of all the music in the world and on top of all that and beyond all that and deeper than all that everything that god does for us everything that is that is eternal lasting value in our spiritual experience is based on death and resurrection and so let's Hurry up. Moses was called to be the pastor of this great church. And so he went out and called the first meeting. There were two in attendance. He killed 50% of the congregation and buried him. Called the next meeting, and the whole congregation rose up and said, Look, we don't want you as our pastor, and they voted him out. And he took to his heels and went over into the country of where was it? Over in Sinai, Midian, over there near Horeb. Took care of sheep 40 years. He was exercising his ministry in his own strength. And the sum total was that he split the church, killed half the congregation, and got voted out the second meeting, and succeeded in burying one man an enemy. The flesh profiteth nothing. But one day after 40 more years, he met God at a burning bush at Sinai. bush was burned, yet not consumed. And Moses had more sense than a lot of people today. Today the bush is burning, and people say, oh yeah, there's a burning bush over there. And they don't take time to stop and turn aside to inquire about this wonderful, spiritual, charismatic movement where God is working in human lives in an astounding manner and in an almost incomprehensible measure. And they, they just go on their merry way, indifferent. But Moses had more sense than that. He turned aside and said, I'm going to turn aside and look into this thing. And out of the midst of the thing that he couldn't understand, God spoke to him. Hallelujah. And if you see the moving of God's Spirit and you'll take time to turn aside and inquire, God will show you something. God will speak to you out of the midst of this Pentecostal flame. God will speak to you. And God, Moses was brought into a confrontation with God at the burning bush. And that's where he got those sign wonders of the leprous hand and the serpent on the ground. 
That's where God told him, you've got your rod, take that rod down and I'll be with you. Oh, but I got ahead of my story. Let's go back. Oh, there's a bush that's burning and yet it's not consumed. There's still as many leaves on it now as it was before. That's a strange thing. I'm going to look into it. And he drew near and a voice came out of the bush and said, don't come any nearer. Well, he stopped. Take off your shoes. For the place where I now stand is this holy ground. He had on sandals and he kicked them off and stood there, petrified, in feeling. And God said, Come, Moses, I'm going to send you into the land of Egypt, for I have heard, I have heard the groaning and the cry of my people Israel down there. When the black snake whipped and the shambok cracked over the naked back of that Israelite slave, God felt it, and God heard it, and God hears every groan and moan of the prisoners of sin and disease groaning under Pharaoh's whiplash of oppression, of the curse of sin and disease and death and a yawning hell. God feels it. Hallelujah. And in Christ, he has come down to set his people free. He said, I'm going to send you down, Moses, and you're going to bring them out. Not me, Lord, and you know all about the dialogue. Moses said, oh, not me, Lord. I can't go. I'm nobody. You think you know them, but I lived with them. I know how bullheaded they are. Well, they won't accept me, and they won't obey me, and I'm, I'm a man slow of speech. Listen, when he, when he met God at the burning bush, he said, I'm a man slow of speech, but their scripture texts now, I don't say this is so, but there are scripture texts in the book of Deuteronomy which strongly indicate that Moses quoted the entire book of Deuteronomy in one 24-hour period. When he said period at the end of the sermon, God took him up on the mountain and he died. He didn't lack for words then. I'll tell you, when God gets through, the things change. And so God gave Moses a new commission, but first of all, he had to take off his shoes. What? God wasn't contradicting Moses. Lord, what? No, let's just pretend. Let's just read into the text my imagination. Lord, you want me to take off my shoes? What for, Lord? Well, the place where you stand is holy ground. Well, I know that, and, but is that all? Just to know there's something beyond that. I want Moses, you to take off your shoes because I'm going to ask you to do something that you can't do. I'm going to ask you to walk into Egypt and walk out with between two and three million redeemed slaves, and I know that you can't do that. But if you'll get out of your shoes, I'll put them on. And what you can't do, I'll do for you. You say, it's not so. It is so. Did Moses do that in his own strength? You ought to know better. And if you read the Bible far enough, you'll come to it. There was the angel of his presence that was with him. God brought Israel out with a high hand and a stretched out arm. God was in the raising of Aaron's rod over the Red Sea, over the River Nile. God was in the locust lice and frogs and flies coming tumbling down out of blackened skies. It was God in the plagues. It was God that humbled Pharaoh. It was God that sent the death angel over the land of Egypt to smite the firstborn. Somebody says, that wasn't God, it was the devil. God says, I will pass over you. Not the devil, God. Why do we read a lot of stuff into the Bible that's not there? God says, I will come down and I will pass over you. 
And God passed over them, and where the blood was on the door, when the Lord passed over Egypt, there was weeping everywhere, for the angel smote the firstborn of each family dwelling there. But some houses he passed over, as his word had said before, and death entered not the dwelling where the blood was on the door. Precious blood upon the door, saving blood upon the door. Oh, my soul, there is no danger when the blood is on the door. And so Moses went down into the land of Egypt. I've got to cut this short. Moses went down into the land of Egypt with God walking in his shoes, doing for him what he could not do. But before God could get Moses into the place where he could do that for Moses and through Moses and by Moses, he had to get Moses to the place of resignation, abdication, and full surrender to him, signified and symbolized by Moses kicking off his shoes. And if you're sick and tired of sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting, abdicate. Get off the throne. Go to the cross. You can't crucify yourself. I do, I do not wish to appear facetious. This is too sacred. But if you put your hand on a cross and drove a nail through it, how would you get, your, how would you get the nail driven through your other hand? If you crucified your hands, how would you be able to get a nail through your feet? If you drove the nail through your feet first, how would you be able to stand upright on the cross to get the nails through your hands? You can't crucify yourself. You say, well, how do you? They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with, with its affections and lusts. We are crucified with Christ by an act of our faith and by an act of our appropriation of the death of Jesus Christ. That when he died, we reckoned by faith that he included us and we died with him. Paul says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ, whereby the world is crucified unto me. Did you get that? Saints, saints, saints. The world is crucified. It's dead. It's a loathsome corpse. The world is crucified to me and I am crucified unto the world. How? By God putting us through the ringer and taking us out, taking us uh, the world away from us piecemeal, like the little boy cut off the dog's tail a half inch at a time because it w so it wouldn't hurt so much? No. No, 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 no. Christ was crucified for us. And we are crucified with Christ by a matter, in a matter of reckoning by faith ourselves identified with him on the cross of Jesus Christ and that's the only way you can be identified with him in the glory of his resurrection and ascension hallelujah to sit together with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus see I told you death and resurrection was the basic principle of all of God's dealings with us in preparation for eternal ages hallelujah now alright Moses was being sent on a commission to bring Israel out of the land of Egypt before God could do it for him. Moses could never do it. You know that. He had to get out of his shoes so God could get in them. And God went with them. The angel of his presence was with them. The Lord went before them. Moses one time said after at Sinai, Lord, uh, how do I know that you want us to go up into Canaan? How do I know that, that, you, that, that, that we're really in your will? And God says, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And Moses said, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, tarry us not up hence for How else shall it be known that thou art our God and we are thy people? And the way the world tells that we're the people of God and God is our God is by the manifest presence of God in our midst. It's not you. 
It's Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is the center of New Testament theology. It's Christ in you. I'm talking about the crucified life. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It's Christ that lives the overcoming life in you. And you get your eyeballs full enough of a crucified Son of God, agonizing, bleeding, groaning, dying, sweating, scarred, so that he no longer resembled the aspect of a human being on Calvary's cross. And the things of the world will slip away from you. And you won't have to say, Lord, take cigarettes away from me. Oh, take card playing away from me. Heard a preacher tell him, preacher told me one day, he said, every time I go past the racetrack, I just have to set my will and plead the blood so that I'm able to get past the racetrack so I won't go in and damn. God help us. Well, I thank God he pled the blood. I don't think he does yet. I think he's still hanging on. But what an awful way to have to live a Christian life. Every time I drive past the saloon, plead the blood lest I have, lest I go in and get drunk. God's got something better than that for us. Take your shoes off. Abdicate. Get out of the way. Resign. Reckon that you're crucified with Christ. Let Christ get down in your shoes in resurrection power and fullness, and he'll do the job for you that you can never do. Hallelujah to his name forever and forever. Did I mystify you? Well, you're hopeless if I didn't let you, if you couldn't understand that. Hallelujah to his name forever. Well, let's skip on. I got ten minutes, eight minutes, five minutes, something. I got something. Years pass. They get out of the tiny eye and they wander through the wilderness. And finally they come to, they come to Moab and get around the corner of Moab and they have a scrap with Ammon and they kill Bashan. They kill Og, king of Bashan and uh, the other fellow, king of the Amorites. And, and, they, and, they, and they cross the Jordan. Remember? Moses quoted the book of Deuteronomy. He went up on Mount Nebo and died. Joshua was, Joshua was his appointed commander-in-chief, and Joshua led the Israelites across. God said, Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Don't fear, be strong, and I'll be with thee. As I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. Just go right over and possess the land. And so they sent the ark. God told him how. Joshua sent the ark. There's so many paces, almost a full mile ahead of them, and he told the, told the camp, keep your eye on the ark, keep your eye on the ark. And you know, that's God's advice for Christ for the nations. Keep your eye on the ark, keep your eye on the ark, keep your eye on the Holy Ghost, keep your eye on eternal verities, keep your eye on the ark. And when the priests bearing the ark put their ankles down in the waters of Jordan, the waters, they weren't scared of the priests, they were scared stiff of the ark. And they turned around and ran back uphill, went, turned around ran back the other way. And all Lord Jordan ran away, and the priest stood there steadfast, bearing the ark on their shoulders, for the ark was Christ. The ark was Christ, containing the laws, the laws we've heard preached, containing the tables of the law, and the pot of manna, and Aaron's rod, covered with the mercy seat, sprinkled with the blood, once on the mercy seat, for God didn't have to have Christ crucified seven times. And we, didn't, we don't need him crucified every week either. A lot of people think they do, but you don't. He was crucified once for all in the end of the age. He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hallelujah to his name. There, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Not even a repetition of the sacrifice of Christ offered to the Queen of Heaven. Hallelujah. Mad at me? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And... And, uh, and they followed the ark, smack dab across Jordan, 
I was preaching in a little town in Arkansas one time. The name of the place was Smackover. I said, that anybody here from Smackover? Well, these folks are from Smackover. Old Brother Tanner said, I said, Brother Tanner, how did they come to call Smackover? He said, the old lady said the creek gun rose and went smack over the town, smack over the road. Well, anyway, the, the, the whole tribe of all the 12 tribes of Israel went smack over Jordan, dry shot. And when they got on the east, they got on the west side of Jordan, they landed on a place called Gilgal, and they, uh, and they made certain fourfold preparations to conquest the land of Canaan, and an evening, to get this, Joshua went out, Clatter and sheep, not back toward Jordan, but westward toward Jericho. And he said, the first job God told me to do is to take Jericho. Now, how am I going to do it? I know. I'll bring my cracked troops up this draw here, and I'll make a frontal attack right just about here. And he was surveying the land and laying his strategy for the attack of the siege of Jericho. And he said, over here, I'll bring my sons of Benjamin. They can sling a stone with their right hand as good with their left hand as good as they can with their right hand. They were ambidextrous. And they could, they could fight with two hands just as well as they could with the other one. And uh, I'll bring some of the other tribes. I'll bring Simeon. Boy, can that fella fight. I'll bring him up the other draw there. And, and he was laying all the strategy and all the plans for the conquest of the land of the city of Jericho. And a tall stranger appeared nearby. I think it says with a drawn sword, check up on me, read it yourself. Joshua. Joshua pulled out his sword, went up to the stranger. He was no milksop or no penny. I mean, he was no, uh, he was no frady cat. He said, are you one of my men? Or are you one of these heathen Jerichoites? Are you for us or are you against us? Are you one of my men? If the man had said, oh, no, Joshua, I'm one of your Israelites, he'd have said, get back in line. You're out of bounds. Report to your corporal. You're going to be disciplined. Report to your lieutenant. What are you doing out here? Back to the camp. And that poor fellow would have been in for some discipline. But don't you think Joshua didn't run that camp? Talk about the Marines. I think they could have learned something from Joshua, the way he run business. And, uh, and uh, he said, are you one of... If the man had said, no, I'm one of the men of Jericho, it would have been the last thing he would have ever said. He would have been speechless from then on. <laughs> but the stranger didn't seem to be the least bit perturbed. He said, nay, I'm not one of your men. I'm not working under your orders. Nay, I'm not of the enemy. But I am the captain of the Lord's host. You, Joshua, I'm interpolating now. You, Joshua, are the captain of God's earthly host. But I am the captain of God's heavenly host. You don't know it, but we've been surrounding you and protecting you all along. And you know what Joshua did? He fell on his face. Oh, no, 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 I'm getting ahead of my story. Joshua, Joshua, who are you? He said, as captain of the Lord's host, am I come? Take off your shoes. What did he say that for? Because the captain of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, a theophany, Christophany. What's that? Well, that's theological terminology. 
which means the appearance of Jesus Christ in the form of man before his virgin birth. I just let you know that to let you know that I know something about theology. And in this theophany Christophany, Jesus said, Take off your shoes. Why? Because just as God was telling Moses to go down and bring Israel out, a thing that it was impossible for him to do, and he said, Get out of your shoes so I can get in them and do it for you. He says the same thing to Joshua. I'm going to lead you into the conquest of the land of Canaan and all that God promised Abraham to you and your children and the Israelites. I'm going to see that you really have it fulfilled in you, but I can't do it even through you until you get out of your shoes and let me get into your shoes and do it for you. Take off your shoes. And Joshua kicked off his shoes and fell on his face. And the Jews in the synagogues of Dallas teach their students that Joshua helped handle first, handed his sword to the captain of the Lord's host. Hallelujah. And the way you fight your spiritual victories is and gain your spiritual victories and wage warfare in this conflict against hell and the powers of darkness of which we are conscious pressing in on us on every side is not to fight in your own strength. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of wickedness in high places, against the very prince of the power of the air. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual, mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds. Take off your shoes and let the captain of the Lord's host get in them. And there Joshua, the captain of the Lord's host, Jesus told Joshua how to prosecute the siege of Jericho. Walk around the place once a day, the first day and once a day, the second day and once a day, for six days and the seventh day, walk around six times, six and seven, seven, seven days, and the six, seventh day, six times, that's seven, seven times, that's thirteen times around. And every time you come to thirteen in the Bible, there's a revolt, there's a famine, there's an upheaval, there's a rebellion, there's something bad takes place for, for somebody. And they walked around thirteen times, and I also, they walked around in silence. They did no such thing. They walked around blowing ram's horns and making one awful racket. Like Coxie's army. And the Jericho, I leaned over the wall and said, look at them. Don't even have uniforms. Going to war with a bunch of ram's horns, the idiots. <laughs> oh, you see that big fellow there? Oh, he's got a servant by side. Oh, they tell me that's the commander. What's his name? Joshua. Oh, Joshua! Are you Joshua? Aye, aye. You're Joshua. Listen, you crazy hoodlum. How do you think you're going to knock the walls of Jericho down? So many chariots wide and so many hundred feet high and so, oh my. How do you, with, with a few little, few little baseball bats and pick handles and you don't even have any sensible weapons. And you're, you're coming against this city. <laughs> you're crazy. You know what? I don't, the Bible doesn't say it, but I can imagine it. And I think my, I think I got a good imagination. <laughs> Joshua didn't give him any back talk or any lip. I mean, any any sarcastic repartee. But I think Joshua said in his heart, if he didn't say it out loud, "Well, old boy, you don't know it. All you say is true. We can't do it. We're nothing. But we've got an unseen captain. You can't see him, but I can see him. 
He just turned a corner right up there ahead of us. Did you notice his shoes? He's walking in my shoes. For God told me to do this, and I can't do it myself, but he's doing it for me. And when he gets through with you, you're going to look like Hamburg. Yes, sir, you're, you're, there's going to be nothing left of you. The, uh, the unseen captain is walking in my shoes right there ahead of me. Hallelujah. And you know the story? On the seventh day, on the 13th time around, Joshua said, all they boys shout. Let them have it. And they shouted with a great shout. Whoopee! I wonder what they shouted. I think maybe they shouted hallelujah. For the word hallelujah in the Bible is always used and in definite connection with the destruction of God's enemies. When you're saying hallelujah, hallelujah, and you're singing hallelujah, hallelujah, it's not just a beautiful phrase in a, in a religious sense. It's not just praise to God the Creator and the Redeemer. It means that. Praise to God the Creator and the Redeemer. That's the etymology of the word hallelujah. Praise to God the Creator and the Redeemer. But it is always used in the Bible in connection with the destruction of God's enemies. Hallelujah. And I have an idea that Joshua was just saying, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And now he says, Shout, boys. And they all shouted, I presume, Hallelujah. And the walls went tumbling down. How'd they do it? They taught me in the little Baptist. I didn't mean to tell the name, but in my little Sunday school when I was a tiny little kid, little boy. They said, you know, the Boy Scouts are told when they walk across a bridge to break step because the vibration might, might, might uh, wreck the bridge. And they do that in the Army. Going across an old rickety bridge, they break step, lest the vibration set up and, and the bridge collapse. That's a scientific fact of physics. And so, oh, uh, uh, they, they, they said just all these Jews walking around the wall softened, the, uh, just vibrated the vibration, softened the, the soft limestone rock there, and then when they shouted, the vibration knocked the walls down. Don't you think it? Did you ever see it? I didn't see the walls then. I wasn't around then, but I saw the ruins. Man, doorknobs as big as this building. I want to tell you, it took more than a few thousand feet walking around to knock those walls down. You know what it was? It was the swooping of 10 billion angels' wings that swept over Jericho and knocked them down. Why? Because Joshua was Joshua, and he'd been voted in now. He got sense enough to re get out of his shoes and let Jesus get in them. And nothing could stand against them. Glory be to God and the Lamb forever. And he'll take you through and give you victory and make you triumphant if you'll resign, if you'll surrender, if you'll give up, if you're willing to reckon yourself dead indeed unto self for a 